I haven't arrived. I'm not super successful. I'm just real. Yeah. Welcome to the Beautiful Project Podcast. What's it going to take for you, like you said, to see me? How? I don't understand. A place for ordinary women sharing extraordinary truths. I am fat. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm so much, you know, I'm learning to tell myself that I am so much more. Let my hair grow out. I can wear the clothes I want to wear. I can eat what I want to eat. Who are waiting for you to be their witness. If I can do anything, I want to be able to inspire people to just be their best. Welcome back to the Beautiful Project Podcast. I'm Sarah Stevens, your host for this podcast and the founder of the Beautiful Project. I am super excited about today's conversation. Um, I'm welcoming back my friend Terry to the microphone. And Terry was a guest in season one. We had an incredible time talking about her body story. My favorite quote about uh, from that interview, and I'm going to butcher it, but it was something about like, We've got kids locked up in cages, so if some old man is bothered by the fact that I'm fat, I'm like, fuck you, bro, right? <laughs> yes. There are kids locked in cages. Right. The who world's gives on fuck- fire. Who yeah, cares if I'm fat? fat yeah. Right. So um, that's a much better <laughs> summary of the quote. It was classic Terry, and you can expect more of that today, very likely. But um, a couple weeks ago, Terry reached out and shared a story with me about her experience in a medical setting, navigating the world in a fat body, and... It was, it's such an important story because it is such a common story. And it's a piece of the reality of fat phobia and diet culture that I think most of the world doesn't actually have any idea is a reality. So I wanted to bring it to this platform for sure. But before we jump right into that part of the story, I wanted to sort of invite you to recap a little bit about you and your story in your body. I think one of the things that happens for folks is that they assume that, well, a couple things about people in fat bodies. First, that we've always been fat, and second, that we haven't tried. Right, right. right. We're just lazy and just eating lazy. KFC. And KFC, so much KFC. on our couch, yeah. yeah. Popeyes. That's, Popeyes. that's pretty much my life. Pretty much, yeah. So um, I would like to give you just sort of the opening minutes to to set the stage for the actual truth, which I'm, I don't even need to know the details to know it doesn't have a damn thing to do with KFC. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it has nothing to do with KFC. Nothing. No, I um, I was an athletic kid. I mean, you and you and I have a lot of similarities. You know, I, I played softball. I played softball, I think, for 13 years. Like, back then, we started when we were five. Yep. Um, I was a catcher, um, so knees were terrible anyway. Mm. Um, you know, I ran, I walked, I, I did... I came from a small high school, so you kind of just did everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I will admit my senior year of high school, when they'd make us run, I'd run as far as the church on the corner and then smoke a cigarette in the front. But, you know, <laughs> turned out okay. Yeah. That had nothing to yeah. do with uh, fat bodies and more to do with a natural propensity for addiction. Right, probably. right. And honestly, like, at least I could run to the church, right. you know, and right. smoke a cigarette and run back. So. <laughs> It's probably more than I can do now. Right. Um, so, yeah, I I don't think I was overweight until I went to college. Yeah. I started gaining weight. Uh-huh. Um, and, yeah, and then it was just like, you know, there, I, as I was an adopted kid, so I had met my biological family by that point, and, you know, I saw that there was a genetic component to this that yeah. I hadn't known about before. Yeah. Um, so, so was your adoptive family um, the body... 
So your body was different from those bodies. Um, yeah, in a lot of ways. Like my, so I was adopted by my aunt and uncle. It's kind of a weird. Yeah. You're, we're going to feel like we're on Maury's story. So I was adopted by my aunt and uncle. So my grandparents were my grandparents. So my biological father's sister and her husband adopted me. Got it. So I, I have a very, I'm very much like my grandmother in a lot of ways. Um, but everybody else, yeah, I didn't look like anybody. I did, I wasn't like anybody. I was, you know, it was a, we talked about it before. It was a very abusive household. It was awful. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was very much like I was, I was, I know where I was told a lot, like, um, you know, you better, you better not eat that if you want to have a boyfriend. And I'm like, I want a fucking boyfriend, you know, <laughs> but I grew up in a town of 800 people. So I had a boyfriend because, right. you know, right. that's, that's what you do in towns of 800 people in Northwest Iowa. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was really in college that I started gaining weight and, you know, I met my wife when I was young, I was 25 and we've been together 21 years and, you know, so I wasn't like trying to date. I wasn't worried about it. Like I had somebody who loved me and I was pretty healthy. I went to nursing school, um, worked as an ICU nurse and then had a baby and stayed home. And that's pretty much, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has your body story been marked by periods during which you worked to make your body smaller? Um, absolutely. Like I remember, um, I remember in nursing school and I just, I thought of this the other day, I'd totally forgotten about it. I was doing a, a psych rotation mm-hmm. and went with a local, um, I believe she was a psychiatrist, older woman. I don't remember her name, but she did, um, she would do rounds at the, at nursing homes. Mm-hmm. So I was doing rounds with her and she was seeing a woman who obviously had a lot going on, um, kind of, the woman was mentally totally there, but her family had kind of left her and she was unhappy and, and you could tell she was kind of a wealthy woman and didn't expect this kind of treatment and expected something better. And, um, she was in her wheelchair and she was a heavy woman and it was a normal size, the standard size wheelchair. And she was complaining about pain And the doctor, the psychiatrist was very dismissive of her. And she was like, well, it's because you're too big to sit in that wheelchair. And then turned to me and said, see, you better lose weight or somebody, someday someone will have to do this for you. Are you fucking kidding me? No. And I was like, you know, there are bariatric wheelchairs, like, we could just get, or we could let her sit in a regular chair, you know, right. Do our job and make sure that she's taken care of, you know? So it's stuff like that where I was, you know, I think people make assumptions. Um, I always worked ICU, so, you know, it was quick. Everything was happening fast. I remember one time during a code, um, I jumped onto a gurney to do um, compressions, and after it was all over, the doctor said to me, wow, you move fast for a fat girl. Mm. And I was like, is that supposed to be a compliment? <laughs> because, because we're all slow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like, do you think that I don't know how to do my job because I'm fat? Like... It's just, yeah, so things like that, um, you know, I never felt it from, you know, I didn't feel it from my friends. I didn't feel it from my wife. I have friends that will, like, my best friend is tiny. Mm -hmm. She's, like, five foot tall and weighs 120 pounds. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's never been an issue for me personally. Mm -hmm. It's been an issue for me professionally. It's been an issue for me in the public, but... So the times that you did make efforts to make your body smaller was in response to that external pressure. Yeah. Yeah. What do those efforts look like for you? Um, oh, God, I've probably done every right. diet plan, the same ones you've done, you yeah. know, the Weight Watchers, the, what's that, the Sanford? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, where I was working out, like, 
heavy workouts daily and they were only letting me eat 900 calories a day. And I'm like, does anyone here understand science? This is not a good idea. <laughs> like I'm going to pass out and hit myself in the head with a kettlebell. And what we know now is that there's a profound and prolonged negative metabolic effect from right. that kind of deprivation. Your body doesn't know the difference between that kind of deprivation and a famine. Yeah. So it decides to just ratchet that metabolism down a little right. more. And, right. And you know, I think like my senior year of high school, I thought I was heavy. I might've weighed 130 pounds. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think the whole year, all I ate were ramen noodles and like drank diet Coke, you know, yeah. that was it. Yeah. And when I graduated from high school, I was 119 pounds. I don't have a build to weigh 119 pounds. Right. My wife does, yeah. but you know, my wife at 119 pounds is a size four. Me at 119 pounds is a size 10. Like, yep. I don't have a tiny build. Right. I've got a big ass, and I've got hips, and I've got boobs. Like, yep. you know, that doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. um, so I always think about that now as I try to lose weight. I'm like, how much damage did I do starving myself for that year or two years that now I'm paying for? I think about that all the time. Yeah. I, and, and just trying to flip the lens on that because I can get pretty self-punitive about that too. Mm -hmm. So I work really hard to switch the lens and thank my body for the fact that what she's done is work to survive that. Like right. that she really was just working to survive a famine. Yeah. That's fucking awesome. Well, and, and I think for me too, I've, you know, after many years of therapy, um, <laughs> I, I thank my body too for like protecting me for all those years. I was very physically abused. Mm -hmm. um, there are still, you know, things that you know, will pop up. You know, I, we were in a car accident a couple of years ago and, um, I, they x-rayed my shoulder, the seatbelt had, you know, hit my shoulder and he said, oh, you've broken your collarbone before. And I was like, oh yeah, I did. I, you know, I forgot about it. They, I didn't break my collarbone. My collarbone was broken for me. Um, but it, I was never, you know, I never went to the doctor because, you know, so I, just in the last couple of years, I've started thinking of it that way. Like, yeah, my body hurts after, you know, just being tough on it, being overweight, being a nurse, mm -hmm. playing sports, my body hurts, but you know what? It's saved my ass so many times. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and, and I will say, and people who didn't grow up in abusive situations, I don't think ever really understand this, but I would take the physical beating over the mental, the, just the screaming and the berating any day, because that's the stuff. It's so much harder to fix your brain. Like yeah. that's the shit you hear in your head every day, Yeah, you know, and it's so much, you know what? I can walk with a limp, but that shit that sits in your head, that's like, that does the damage. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, well, here we go. Thank you for <laughs> the, <re> this <laughs> is what we do. This is what we do. We just go real deep. Yep. Um, side note, Terry and I, I adore Terry like a sister and we have not, this is the first time we've seen each other in a year. <sighs> So it's kind of magical up in this studio right now. Right. You guys don't know, but uh, maybe you can hear it. Hopefully you can hear it. So let's then transition to this story that you shared with me a couple of weeks ago um, just to set the stage. So she set the stage around uh, the realities of the abuse that her body has sustained over years and how it's adapted to that in many ways. And um, and then I'm just I'm actually not going to say a whole lot more. I'm just going to turn it over to you to just share your experience. Um, so I think I told you, like I played softball, I was a catcher. I, at 15 years old, they were telling me you're going to need knee replacements. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've, I've had bad knees my entire life. Um, back in this weird, this year has been so weird. Mm-hmm. Like I don't even, time is so, <laughs> Same. I, I don't know. It could have happened last week or March. Of and last I don't year. know what month because my kid's been home since yeah, March. Like right. I don't even know. Um, it was over the summer. Um, I was going down the stairs and twisted my knee. Um, I thought no big deal, but the pain was pretty intense, like pretty serious. Mm-hmm. Had just a regular doctor's appointment for a med check. And so I said to her, Hey, I'm having a lot of problem with this knee. Like it's really hurting and it's swelling. And she's like, okay, well let's send you over to one of the orthopedic doctors in this community. So I go over and they did an x-ray and they said, well, we think you tore your meniscus. But we can't tell that in an x-ray. I was going to say, incidentally, yeah. just for people who are not familiar with, like, diagnostics, right. you actually can't tell shit about it. No, you can I mean, tell if your kneecap was broken. Yeah, you can tell if my leg was broken with right. the x-ray they did. But right. um, So we think you tore your meniscus based on, you know, what we see in the x-ray and the, and the pain that you're having. And I'm like, okay, well, what do we do? And she said, well, I'd like to do physical therapy and we'll give you a cortisone injection. Okay, great. I did, I, you know, it was COVID, so I have a friend who is a, a, is a PT, and I said, what should I be doing? She told me what to do. I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, got the cortisone injection. It felt better for about a day. So it's just getting worse and worse. So I'm in my kitchen one day, and we have, like, one of those little, um, like, the pads, like they have in, in, like, an industrial kitchen that, you know, so you don't hurt your back standing in the kitchen all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, men, for inventing that for us. Uh <laughs> So it's got a little lip on it, and I just made, like, this slight, like, move, and the knee just totally went out, um, and I knew something was wrong. So I call this doctor, and she's not in, so they say, come right in. This guy's going to see you. He does another x-ray, and he comes in, and he says, you have the knees of a 70-year-old. You need this knee replaced. And I was like, okay, so now what? Well, he said, I want to see you again in a week. But I can't do anything right now. It's swollen. It's, you know, like, go home, put ice on it. Here's what we're going to do. So I get a call to come back in later that week to see the original doctor. And I said, here's what he said. And she goes, yeah, we're not doing that. You know, we're not going to, no one's going to do a knee replacement on somebody your age. And I'm like, seriously, I'm 46. Even if it lasts 20 years, put in another one. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand this. And so then it became, well, we'd like you to lose some weight before we do it. Okay, so as a nurse, I and as an ICU nurse, a big thing for me is quality over quantity, or you know, just that argument about. So you want me to lose weight? Mm-hmm. I can't do a lot with this knee. Mm-hmm. Um, as this has progressed, I've lost a lot of mobility. Like I was telling you, like sometimes walking to the end of my driveway is about the end of what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and when your knee hurts, your back hurts. And your hip hurts and everything hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went, so I it just, you know, it was just like, let's do more cortisone. Let's, we're just going to keep putting it off. Keep trying to lose weight. Go swimming. I'm like, there's a global pandemic. Do you think I have a pool in my basement? Like, and it's winter. <laughs> Where am I going? <laughs> like, so I went in to see my regular doctor last week. Um, just again, just a scheduled appointment. And I said, listen, I'm having, I, I'm losing mobility. I said, I laid in bed last night and cried because this pain is like, 
something that I, I've never had. I said, I've had a gallbladder attack that didn't hurt as much as this pain. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's had a gallbladder attack knows that you would murder somebody to take that away. Yeah. Um, I'm having like big, huge, like Charlie horses in big muscles, like the thigh muscle and, Listen, it's bad enough in a calf, but in a thigh, (laughs) it's a big muscle to be in a ball. So she says, well, you know, I really think that you need to lose weight before we do anything. I think you should have bariatric surgery, and then we'll do your your knee replacement. And I said, you know, as a nurse, I know that having two surgeries like that, big major surgeries, really increases my risk for a lot of things like blood clots and... Well, I don't know that you'd be at a risk for that. You don't know I'd be... Okay, but medical knowledge says that I would be. Like, the AMA two years ago said, you're you're at risk after a major surgery for up to 12 months of having a blood clot. So, of course I would be at risk. Everyone's at risk. Plus, there's a fucking global pandemic. (laughs) And I don't want to go into a hospital twice. Um, So then, this was the part that... I knew your head about blew off because my head about blew off when she said, you know, at the beginning of your doctor's appointment, they ask you these questions like how, you know, how are you feeling? How are you coping? And she goes, I'm a little concerned about the answers to your questions. It seems like you're a little depressed and anxious. Well, yeah, I am. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm in pain. 24-7, I am in pain. And she goes, well, I could prescribe some Wellbutrin. Some Wellbutrin. I'm like, for what? And she goes, well, because you're depressed. I'm like, well, I already take Lexapro. I already have a prescription for Xanax. None of that has fixed this pain. What is Wellbutrin going to do? Make me not care? Make me stop complaining to you? Right. Like, what is that going to do? Right. You're not addressing a problem. You want me to go on a medication that has a side effect of weight gain. Right. And it's winter. So it's not like I'm out walking. It's, you know, like so cold. (laughs) <laughs> There's 400 feet of snow everywhere, everywhere yeah. and I'm like, and that's that that's your solution. Mm-hmm. And so I just left there, and I was so like, I was just kind of beaten down, and that's so not me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I reached out to you because I'm like, this is this isn't happening to just me. No. Like this is happening. I mean, I saw it in no. you know when I was a nurse. Yeah. Um, I heard the things people say. I've been in surgeries where you know they talk about bodies. You know, I've heard all those things. Yeah. I guess you know, and this my therapist would say, you know, Terry, you're very black and white, and I am. Like I think that we should all be treated decently. I mean, that's all I'm asking. Right, and like, God forbid that that's your black and white. Like, yeah. If that's your line, that humans should be treated equitably. Right. Like I came to you as a patient and I'm saying I'm in pain. I mean, and I even said to her and, and, you know, this is something, you know, and most people know I'm in recovery. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, I said, I'm at the point where I'm ready to ask you for narcotics Mm -hmm. because that's how much pain I'm in. And she goes, well, we, we, we we couldn't do that. We don't want to just add more pills because pills, they just tell your brain not to hurt. And then you offer me Wellbutrin, which just tells my pain that it doesn't hurt. Like it's the same thing more dopamine won't make my knee hurt less. No. The thing, so I want to retrace a few things here. So I I think that for, um, while I know most people know this space to be a fat positive space, I think that there are still plenty of us who carry 
a lot of bias about fat bodies who are listening. I think that's normal. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not even, and I, I've inter- I have internalized fat bias. It's, it's impossible not to. You have, you have to be in a coma in right. this culture, right? So I'm always checking it. And so this is an opportunity, I think, for the audience to check their own. Um, and to check things like, along the way in Terry's story, did you find yourself thinking things like, well, yeah, but do we really want to do a knee replacement on somebody in a large body when extra body weight puts weight or puts pressure on joints. Or if you found yourself thinking some of those really common lines of thought that truthfully at the end of the day, the the core assumption there is that you have chosen a lifestyle that has led you to this pain. So somehow you should have to pay like, like reparation for that or something with your own pain. Right. Which is really what leads physicians to say shit like, like was said to you, right. right? Because if you check the medical facts here, a couple of things that I think are important to point out. The first is, regardless of Terry's bad knees along the way, she had an injury. It's very obvious you had an injury. You had acute, you had an acute onset of symptoms that has not right. been resolved since then, right? So that's not from being fat, that's from tripping. Right. <laughs> right? So if Terry were thin and she had had an injury... What would have happened differently, right? right? I mean, so you can probably speculate. How would you have been treated differently in a thin body? Because you've been oh, in medicine your whole life. I would have, ha- I would have gotten an MRI. First uh, thing? Yeah. Absolutely the wrong imaging has been applied. Right. Here. Nobody knows what's going on inside no. your knee, actually. No. In fact, my doctor the other day was like, you know, you probably tore your ACL. You probably... I'm like, but we don't know because no one has looked. Um, you know? And, and so my question to her, and I think we'll kind of answer your question, was... What if I were in a car accident on the way home and a truck hits me and the bone is sticking out of my leg? Am I going to go to the ER and they're going to go, oh, sorry, you're too fat to help? Right. Why would we fix that bone? You're just going to stand on it again with your fat body. And, you know, and I think it's also important to point out that these artificial joints, they only last 20 years for everybody. Right. They don't last forever. Right. So that doesn't. It doesn't matter my size. That joint's not going to last forever. It doesn't for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I get why they want to do them on older people because they think, yeah. oh, if you're 60, this will last you to your 80 and, you know, you'll probably be okay. But why are we okay with that as a society? Like being told, well, you're just going to have to suffer until you get older or you lose weight. But until then, we're not going to, we're just going to like, you know, berate you into losing weight. And to circle this back too, so let's say... Let's say that you did choose bariatric surgery, which, again, I, I, Terry and I have had this conversation before, too. The, I, while I think some people may perceive that I am, um, that I might have judgment about a person's decision to do that, I don't have a sense of judgment. I have a deep sense of grief, actually, is what happens when I, when I hear women share that part of their story because... I too have paid attention to the research and I know I know the other I know the risk of, and the complication and I also understand the deep desire to be thinner. Well, and and all the, not for the aesthetic. Right. Not for the aesthetic, but for well first of all just for basic equitable access to medical care. Right. That'd be fucking ideal. Yeah. You could walk into a doctor and have your injury treated as an injury and not as um, some sort of punishment for the, the quote, life you've lived to be in this body, right. right? 
So equitable access to medical care, which then leads to greater quality of life. These are all things I'm not talking about whether or not you give a fuck about what somebody thinks of how you look, but you want access to the parts of life that are held hostage by fat phobia. I mean, right. and th- because in this case, it's so clear to me that, that what is being withheld from you is quality medical care until you comply. Right. I don't have words for that. And I'm certain that there'd be all sorts, and I know that there are, let me try to get this out. I also understand that there are, based on BMI, there are risks with anesthesia and all sorts of things. I understand all of that. The same risks apply for bariatric surgery, right? Right. And, I, that, and that has to all be going through your head knowing what you know. Exactly. Exactly. I have a six-year-old at home. Do I want to have two major surgeries? Absolutely not. Also, I have a six-year-old at home. Do I want to be able to hang out with him and play with him and do the things? Yes, yes I do. And up until this, I could. Right. Um, and that's, that's the thing that is frustrating to me is that, you know, two things. Like, one, about the medical care. In talking about this to a couple of people, a friend of mine said to me, um, she had to go to see an ENT, ear, nose, and throat doctor the other day. Um, and he mentioned her weight. And I'm like, you were there because of ear infections. Jesus. What the fuck does that have to do with how much you weigh? Does he know where the ear is? Like, I'm kind of concerned that this guy might need help. Was he having a stroke? Like, who gives a shit? Like, look in my ear, asshole, and shut up about my ass. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just, it's just that, like, there's a lot. I mean, this could be a three-day conversation about just the medical field altogether. Mm. I mean, women are always treated worse. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the thing about um, women with gallbladders when they come into the ER, because usually you don't know you have a bad gallbladder until you have a gallbladder attack, which is unbelievably painful. Yes. And they will say at the nurse's station, the doctors, the nurses, I know because I was one of them, will say, oh, female fat and 40, probably yep. a gallbladder. Yeah. I mean, that's it, you know? Um, we treat people terribly, mm-hmm. and we do it all the time. I don't treat done people it. like people. No, no. Right. Yeah. And you know what? I will say as a nurse, it is hard caring for, for a very heavy person. You know, I've had patients 600 plus pounds. It's hard. It hurts your body. It hurts their body. Yeah. That doesn't mean I don't do it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, or that they don't deserve it. Right. You know, I've seen the same thing happen with, you know, now we're seeing this, this with pain medication. You know, for years, doctors prescribed pain medication like it was nothing. Well, now a whole bunch of white people got addicted, so suddenly it's a problem. Right. Um, you know, now we've got a national Crisis. issue because white people are addicted to Vicodin. But now you can't, you know, people who are in chronic pain can't get pain meds. Right. You know, or people who fill out a form and admit that they're in recovery can't get pain meds. People who are not white can't get pain meds. Mm-hmm. Um I talked to somebody recently who had to have uh, an ablation of her uterus done, which, as you know, is like burning the inside of the uterus. Her doctor sent her home with two Lortab. Two. Two days later, her husband went to the gym, smashed his finger between between two weights and broke it, came home with a 30-day supply of Lortab. Jesus. 
And that's that's none of that surprises me. Right. Like it doesn't surprise me. Right. Um, this doctor that I'm seeing is a newer doctor. I had switched after years, and I like her a lot. I really do. This is the thing that we butt heads on mm. because you know I'm really being conscious of what I'm eating. I'm trying, you know, because I'm raising a kid, you know, and I want I don't want him to grow up with the same ideas about food that I grew up with. Right. Um, at the same time, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to eat a salad for every meal. Like, you know, you and I have talked about, I love to cook. I love food. The one, the biggest thing keeping me from bariatric surgery is not being able to cook and eat the foods that I want mm-hmm. to cook and eat. And for me, that's such a thing. It's such a big thing for me to cook for people. Yeah. Um, I know um, our friend Brandon was talking about this last night. Like, yeah. It's just, there's something so intimate about cooking for someone, like taking a recipe that my mother taught me that I can take and make my own and share it with you like that. There's something about that. Well, in our super batshit crazy diet culture driven society, we have demonized the idea that food is anything but fuel. Right. But actually food has a neurochemical response in, in our bodies that, that lends itself toward human connection. Right. That's not by accident. If food were just fuel, you wouldn't feel, it would not create an emotional experience. Exactly. We're wired for it. We're wired for connection this way. And, and I think it's easy for people to um, judge a fat person for saying that, for saying, I... I cannot imagine a life where I'm not able to connect that way. Those people have never eaten my lasagna. Amen so. to that. <laughs> it's the sauce. It's the sauce. It's the sauce. So it's easy to judge a fat person for that uh, approach, but I can guarantee there would not be the same judgment around a person in a thin body who said, food brings me an enormous amount of human connection. Right. That would People would actually resonate with that sentiment. So again, it just illustrates that really what you're talking about here is fat phobia over and over and over and over. Well, and, and I'd like to point out too, that like if, so if someone said to you, they, they think they drink too much and maybe they should stop drinking. Um, and they said, but I can't imagine, you know, not drinking at my wedding or not drinking, mm-hmm. you know, nobody would think that was weird. No, I, they would be like, of course you'd want to have champagne at your wedding. Of course you want to toast your, your children getting married. But when we were talking about food, mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's one of my issues with bariatric surgery, too, is that that issue of is this an addiction? Is this I'm an emotional eater. I know you're an emotional eater. Mm -hmm. I mean, my grandmother, when I was crying, shoved a cookie in my mouth. When I was happy, she shoved a cookie in my mouth. Mm -hmm. I do. Sometimes I do the same thing to my kid, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Actually, humans are emotional eaters. Right. Human (laughs) beings are. Again, it circles back to part of that what food, how food breaks down and how it impacts us. It would be absurd to say that that does not have an emotive component to it. Right. It does, and everybody does it, and I'm really tired of it being shamed like there's something wrong with it. Yeah. Um, you were, but I can tell you were getting to, which is what I was going to ask you about, the part about, so you were talking about your problem with bariatric surgery and emotional, and you're an emotional eater, but I think where you were headed was something you shared with me about even trying to engage the doctor in a conversation around how your eating has changed and why. Right. Right? There's there's no attention paid to why 
someone is fat. Mm-hmm. Um, I will I will say like for me, I have a genetic component. Mm-hmm. I probably gained weight the most when I was in my early twenties when I was drinking and using a lot of drugs and sometimes you eat pizzas you forget about. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it yeah, just yeah. happens. Yeah. Um, and I easily gain weight. Like I am not one of those people that has trouble keeping weight on. Mm-hmm. Um, like we talked about before, I even thin, I have, a, I have hips, I have boobs, I have a butt. I, I'm not a waif of a human being in right. any sense of the word. Right. Um, you know, but that's all that bariatric surgery kind of looks at is what's, we just need to get this person thinner. Yep. But I think if you look through the research, you'll see a huge rise in people who've had bariatric surgeries ending up with other addictions, alcohol, especially alcohol, because your body metabolizes the alcohol differently because of the way the surgery is done. Mm -hmm. So you get really drunk really fast. Mm -hmm. And anybody who, you know, even people who aren't in recovery have used drugs or alcohol know that's usually why you're using them for that feeling that you get that feeling to forget or that feeling to be, you know, feel happy or whatever it is. We're not paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. And that's such a huge part of the bariatric surgery that I can't, I've gone through all the steps. I've done all the things, but it gets to that point. And I'm like, I can't, I can't because what's going to happen afterwards. Yep. Yep. And in this case with the physician that you talked to, you you even tipped your hand to like, no, I'm eating more because I'm super depressed. And her yeah. answer was bariatric surgery. Yeah. That doesn't, again, it's, it's, it's the same thing as let me give you Wellbutrin for your knee pain. Yeah. The fuck is everybody talking about? I know. I, you feel like, like I, it made me feel really bad for some of my patients over the years because you feel like you're talking and like you're speaking French and everyone in the room is just like <laughs> speaking Spanish and they're like, Just ignore her. We don't know what's wrong with her. (laughs) Give her Wellbutrin. She'll be fine. Well, and I also think, too, that that is another point. Um, I I sincerely believe that 100 years from now, if we're all still here, uh, we'll look back at this phase in our lives where, um, or phase in our history, where we saw bariatric surgery as a solution for people I think we're going to look back at it and see how and understand it as barbaric and it's right. and and oversimplified in its approach because there is enormous complexity that goes into body shape and size. And I understand that that we want to shave off that complexity right and go drastically reduce the calories in inevitably the body will get smaller. And that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Of course that's true. Um, that does not take into account all sorts of issues with nutrition uh, that are a possibility, and then and then bring in the emotional component that that you have to rewire now. Yep. Right. Um, so I think we'll look back at it as a very barbaric solution. Well, but- and I think we've seen, like, even with this this pandemic. The American healthcare system is like, it's a tertiary system. Right. You know, we don't do anything until something's wrong. Right. So if we, you know, in however slowly it happened, if we could morph into a preventative system where we're teaching nutrition classes in school that are actual nutrition classes, like not because 
the president doesn't like broccoli, so no, it's no longer on the vegetable list, or ketchup is considered a vegetable, like real nutritionists who know what the hell they're talking about. Mm -hmm. If we taught that in school, if we, you know, in the United States, like portion sizes, sizes are huge. Mm -hmm. It's, it's that capitalist system. They want to make money, so you make it bigger. I get all that. Mm -hmm. But we do this with everything. We don't, we don't tell a guy who's at high risk for heart disease, hey, maybe you shouldn't smoke, maybe you shouldn't drink, maybe you shouldn't do these things because 20 years from now you could have a heart attack. Mm -hmm. You know, we just, we're, we're reactive. We're not mm -hmm. proactive. Right. And the healthcare system has always been that way. Yeah. But at some point, like we've been shown, it doesn't work. Like with this virus, it doesn't work to be reactionary. Right. Instead, we're all stuck in our house for a year and, you know, people are acting like children because they have to wear a mask. I mean, it's just, it just, I, I think this year, I, I hope that seeing the way this has happened, that people in the healthcare system will see that and go, you know what, we have to change something. I know, and I don't know how it shifts. That's the thing that's so hard. For, I mean, you know, the point of us t sharing space with this story today is at the very least to shine a light on, uh, actually my primary hope is that the audience can observe their own bias because you've even owned it about your bias toward your lar to your patients in large bodies yeah. over time. And I'll still, I'll still find myself with some of those same trains of thought. Um, but Terry's story is not different than thousands of stories that are similar where um, we dependent on your body size. You can, you literally cannot get access to the same healthcare. Um, because I can guarantee again, a thin body walking in to an orthopedist with this exact, uh, patient history with this exact story would have received an MRI the first day. Yeah. No doubt. Yep. What do you do next? Um, I am seeing a different orthopedic doctor in this community. Um, so I don't know. Um, I need to get the records from the other place into this place. I'm going to push for an MRI. Yeah. Um, so at least we know what's happening. What yeah. You know, um, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. You know, that's the, that's the thing that sucks is that I know nothing about orthopedics. It's not my mm -hmm. area of expertise. The only time I dealt with it was when little old ladies had their hips replaced and then they got too much Vicodin and morphine and ended up in my ICU. Right. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm trying to do everything I can. Um, you know, it, the issue is like, I have really limited mobility with that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I'm riding my bike a little bit stationary, obviously I'm not outside riding a bike. Um, <laughs> But I can't ride for a long time. Um, like last night, I was making dinner for our family, and I have to sit at my table and cut vegetables because I can't stand in the kitchen that long. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I told you when I came in that I tripped down the stairs because the knee gave out, you know. And, I mean, my kid's six, so it's not like I'm carrying him mm -hmm. and almost as tall as me. Um, but if I had a baby, if I had, you know... If I wouldn't have fallen into the laundry at the end of the stairs, he hadn't put away. <laughs> I mean, what are we setting people up for? Are we doing the same thing to somebody who's 65 right. and overweight who a fall could really, you know, cause an issue? That's, I was so frustrated when I called you the other day because it was just not, 
Like I've seen it happen. It's another thing when it happens to you and you're just like, like, like I said, I just thought, is she even hearing what I'm saying? Like, I don't need fucking Wellbutrin. Mm -hmm. I need a new fucking knee. Mm -hmm. Like I just, yeah, it was just, it was the most frustrating thing. And I just think how, how many times is that happening every day? Not just about this. No, not. But about I, everything. That like, was going to be the next thing I was going to say is that it's really important that we also broaden the lens to include the kind of health care um, that's available to people of color. Yeah. Uh, really to anybody. Again, it goes back to intersectionality and anybody outside of the thin white male uh, cis hetero. Any deviation from that central mark, that middle yep. of the bullseye, you and and I'm not making this up. This isn't a narrative thing. Oh God, you do the not mortality have... rate for Black women after giving mm -hmm. after having a baby is higher in the United States than it is in some third world countries. That should. I, I mean, what are we doing? <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, it's just it's the numbers are all there. You know, doctors see them. You know, hospitals see them. It, there's um, a documentary about um, the Cuban medical system, mm -hmm. um, and I cannot remember the name of it right now, but I will tell you when I get home. Mm -hmm. um, and the way the Cuban system is set up, it's so Cubans become doctors, and to become a doctor, it's not a get-rich thing. They're not going to live in mansions. They'll, they'll be fine. They'll, you know, live comfortably. But one of the things they have to do to become a physician is they go to a third-world country and they teach people there how to be doctors mm -hmm. so that they know how to take care of themselves. So that is part of their training. Then they come back to their own community and act as a doctor in their community. Mm. They're not wealthy. They're not driving, you know, fancy cars. They're not, they don't have their own jets. They're living comfortably. They're not, you know, they're not hungry. But it's the way the system is set up that it's actually helping people. It's helping people be better. And it's a preventative system. Mm -hmm. So they're teaching people nutrition. They're teaching people, right. you know, and I think that's the other thing. I mean, obviously, this isn't my issue, but I know this is an issue in the United States that it's it's hard to eat healthy food. I oh, mean, yeah. I have a kid that is primarily vegetarian by his choice, and I'm going broke trying to feed this kid fruits and vegetables all the time. Yep. Um, it's, you know what, a, a 10 piece nugget is a heck of a lot cheaper than, you know, a bag of cherries, which is eight bucks a pound. Yep. And then we, and so what happens is, um, that we blame populations that are already marginalized for their poor health outcomes as if they've chosen that. Right. Instead of looking at, again, circling back to the systemic failure to support a person, it is... It's true in your case for your reasons. It's true in my case. And it's, again, it's true for almost anybody except for that central bullseye of thin white cis hetero male. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, so I don't know what we do about that other than uh, we keep we telling our stories. Burn the motherfucker down. Burn the, <laughs> Terry will be burning the motherfucker down. Uh, <laughs> there's that. It's I mean, all, that's all. option one. Yeah. Anybody was, else got anything else? I was no. going, going with my softer approach of like sharing our stories. Yeah, and fuck that. <laughs> you know you didn't want to do that either. Um, so there's that. And uh, I guess my real hope in this um, 
said it like three times, I want to say it a fourth. Examine your own bias and examine it in the way you apply it to yourself. Um, especially, actually, in this particular situation, I do want to call on thin allies. I think that's critical. It shouldn't just be fat people in the doctor's office advocating for uh, weight neutral, a weight-neutral approach to health. Just because right. you're not... Just because you're not experiencing the oppression doesn't mean that the oppression doesn't exist or that it's not a collective responsibility. So you don't have to be weighed at every doctor's appointment. You, like, that's an actual thing. There's no reason they have to take a weight on you unless they're administering anesthesia or a medication of some sort. Exactly. So if you're a thin person and you decide you want to start to combat fat phobia in a medical environment, it's pretty simple. Refuse to be weighed. Help them understand that, that your weight is not relevant to your overall care in this particular circumstance unless you're coming in with an actual weight-centered complaint, which a knee injury is not a fucking weight-centered complaint, nor is an ENT visit with ear infections. Well, and last year, about this time, um, my whole family got the flu, um, which we now think maybe we had COVID, but who knows? So I went into the doctor, and I, I was sick. I felt like shit. Like, I was just felt awful. And at home, I had a kid who was that sick. So the nurse said, well, let's get you weighed. And I said, can we just get this exam over so I can go home? And she's like, well, we need your weight. I said, I'm a nurse. You are not figuring a medication based on my weight. Mm-hmm. You're not. Unless I'm a child, you're not doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I have the flu. Let's go in so you can take my temperature, which I can already tell you what it is, mm-hmm. and then send me downstairs to get the nasal swab, and then I can go home. You don't need my weight. And so she wrote, refuses weight in big letters. And so the doctor came in and she's like, what's going on? Why are you refusing weight? I said, because you don't need it. I'm sick. I want to go home. Like, I just came in because I need to see you to get a test. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the only reason I'm here, to make sure that I know what we have. Mm -hmm. And it was just, she's like, well, you know, the nurse is upset. You can't just refuse. I said, I can refuse anything I want to (laughs) refuse. I'm not sure that we've met, but I run the show. So... (laughs) If I don't want it, I'm not having it. Yeah. And and I think that should start day one, you know, because we make kids do those things. I um, So when I found a new primary care physician, I pretty much, and I, I don't think we understand this in the Western medical model, and we don't understand it because truthfully, some physicians wouldn't tolerate this, but then they wouldn't be the right physician for right. you. But I pretty much interviewed physicians. I was like, here's where we're at. My weight will not be a central topic to our conversations about my overall health. We can talk about my overall health. Let's talk about um, the results of my CBC and my blood pressure and all the other indicators of metabolic or cardiovascular health. You are not centering my weight. And if you are, then you're not the right physician for me. Right. Uh, and I found somebody now that I feel I, I feel safe with. Um, and she has definitely abided by those boundaries. I always wonder, just because she's a part of the model, you know, is that, is the way that she's treated my body conditional on the fact that I'm still, you know, I'm still in what they call like a mid-fat range, right? Whatever that means. But that's like, like a, a thing. mid-sized car. Yeah, there's small fats, mid-fats, and then there's <laughs> other. I am an SUV, thank you very much. <laughs> Cadillac Escalade over here. <laughs> Oh my God, this is why I just want to just co-host with you always. <laughs> you know, she we just, should talk about that. <laughs> she just called herself a Cadillac Escalade. Anywho, um, 
that conditional approach to, to respecting the boundaries. I always wonder if that's a thing, but I'll cross that bridge when I get there, and I'm hoping that it's not a thing. I would also wonder if she does that with other patients or if that's just something she does with you. It's probably something she does with me. Okay. I demand, I mean. Yeah. But I, I, it would make me wonder, like, if, if as a nurse somebody had said that to me, I would think, oh, maybe I should adjust. Why am I doing it this way? That'd be awesome. I, I mean, it would just, I, I don't know, it would be interesting to me from a medical standpoint if she is kind of looking at that with other patients. So um, one of the things that's coming with the Beautiful Project podcast that I haven't talked about at all, uh, it's been a pretty major undertaking, is that um, in conjunction with St. Ambrose University, which they have a really, they've, they have a pretty innovative department. It's called the Institute of Person-Centered Care. And they've been having some conversations in their public health department around a weight-neutral approach to wellness. Nice. And so they lent me um, a grad student last year, and she did all the research. We, put, we, we actually have it about 80% put together, an entire podcast series on debunking the BMI and the way that we use it in healthcare. And there is ample research to support a shift in our lens to decentralize um, the actual weight number, the BMI number, when it comes to taking care of people. The problem is, like most things, we're starting to see the evidence emerge, which means that the actual community will catch up in about a fucking decade. Maybe, maybe. So in the meantime, people who need an MRI for a knee injury, and um, I mean, I know a story, more than one story, of, of women who are sitting in wheelchairs they don't need to be, but because they can't lose the weight to get the knee replacement. Because they yeah. can't fucking move. Yeah. Everybody pay attention to that. You know? Right? Again, quality and quantity. Yep. Like, you want me to be in pain for the next 20 years so then I can get a new knee. Right. So I win the race then? Yeah. I, I mean... And I lost 20 years of my life? Right. Yeah. Well, Terry, I'm hopeful that you'll be able to come back on someday and say, hey, I found this great orthopedist. It took me forever, but I did find them. And they heard me, and they treated me like a fucking person. And now I can get down on the floor with my boy. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Well, but thank you. Yeah, thank you. Do you have anything else you want to add? I was going to say, you know, something that, that I've just started to notice is, um, so over the holidays, uh, one of the diet, Noom. Is that what it's called? Noom. Oh, it's yeah, Noom. Not Zoom. Yeah. Noom. <laughs> it sounds like Zoom. I don't know. Fine. Um, so they had a 90% off thing. And I thought, okay, it's a way for me to be accountable to somebody. So I thought, I'll do this. But as I'm tracking things, like, it made me start to think about none of us know how to eat. Mm. Because according to Noom, if I eat, like, turkey almonds, sticks. Almonds are a red food in Noom. I have yeah. nothing to say about that. Uh, Sorry. I, I know. That's, but, but that's true. Like, yeah. turkey sticks. You know, the turkey sticks, they're made of turkey. They're lean. They're like a nice afternoon. Yeah. yeah red food. But, you know, if you follow the the thing from the bariatric diet, great. If you're keto, great. But I'm just like, it. Every none of it makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, one says, don't eat that because it's got too much sugar. The other one says, oh, yeah, eat yogurt. It's fine. Don't worry about the sugar. You know, it's in the yogurt. Don't worry about it. You know, so there's no main, like, hey, this is what you should eat. There's just not. And you can go to any gym in this in this town and there's a shit ton of them Mm -hmm. and everyone's going to have a different idea about nutrition. So that's where 
if I have any recommendation around that that's been useful to me is that I work with an intuitive eating dietitian. She's a registered dietitian, so she understands nutrition. And she, because one of the things I think that can, that has happened with intuitive eating, like happens with anything that ends up in social media, is that everybody becomes an expert without any actual education in dietetics and right. nutrition. And and one of the tenets of intuitive eating is gentle nutrition. It, it's in there, but we forget it. And then also people grab it and run with it and they go, well, this just means it's like they interpret it as a binge. Yeah. You just eat whatever you want. Yeah. And that's not how intuitive eating comes out, but you need to work with a professional to learn it and um, to learn the tenets in a way because you've got to unlearn diet culture. So for me, what has been most healing has been the fact, the acceptance that there isn't an external set of rules that will work. Right. That's not. And what works for me is not necessarily going to work for exactly. you. Yep. And yeah. And I think that's the thing. Like, it's really hard when you do talk to dietitians when they go, this is absolutely what you should eat. Mm-hmm. Okay. That doesn't work for me. Yeah. You know, uh, that's not, you know, and I think, I think one of the important things is we need to look at you know, most people aren't living by themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who live by themselves, obviously, but I'm cooking for a family. Mm-hmm. I, you know, if I start cooking, you know, sautéed spinach every night, I'm going to have a revolt on my hands. <laughs> you know, I need to cook things that are palatable, and I'm a good cook, so I can throw things in. Mm-hmm. You know, last night we made omelets, and I threw like eight different vegetables in because I was cleaning out the refrigerator. But not everybody can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we... Again, we don't teach people how to cook. We don't teach people how to prepare food. And so why don't we start? Yep. Well, because we'd have to move away from the multi-billion dollar diet industry. That's why. I mean, the answer is why. Well, because if you start to believe that you can trust your body with its nutritional, if you can learn how to discern that sense, then you don't need Noom. Yeah. And you don't need Weight Watchers. And you don't need all the keto products. And I'm not talking shit Everybody's at whatever place they are in the right, journey. Right, right. But I'm saying that all of, I mean, all nutritional advice, to your point, is conflicting and will change by decade based on, honestly, probably who has the most money. If we're being honest, right. follow the fucking dollar. Well, um, and I mean, you and I are about the same age. I always think of, you know, the, what was the shake? Um, oh, slim fast. Slim you know, fast, just yeah. have a shake and then have yeah. a sensible dinner. Two shakes. Two shakes dinner. and a sensible dinner. You'll be fine. I mean, you'll be rabid and hungry and probably, you know, murder one of your children in the afternoon. But, yep. yeah, just have a sensible dinner that you don't have the energy to make because you're starving from these fucking shakes that just consumed, give you diarrhea. Right, because you've consumed 800 calories yeah. today, none of which is nutrient-dense. Yeah. The whole thing, again, that's all diet culture stuff for me that I just now, I go, I just cut it out. And I I am more likely, you'll find me, um, anything that's, that is leading me closer to the idea that I can be trusted with myself. Right. And is teaching me how to do that. Because, I mean, truthfully, the first couple of years of being anti-diet culture, I probably did interpret intuitive eating as eat whatever I want. Uh, that isn't the case anymore because over time what happens is you hone a sense of what actually makes your body feel better. And right. you have an ability to choose that as opposed to I don't have enough. I've had too many red foods today. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. How many red foods you had? Noomkin. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, for me, it was a way, like, I'm being accountable. Yep. And and I don't give a shit how many red foods I eat. Like, I'm just trying to eat better, and that's a way for me to yep. be accountable. Um, 
But you know what? Butter chicken, red food. I don't fucking care. I'm going to eat that butter chicken, <laughs> and I'm going to eat some naan. So you can be red, as red, red, red as you want. <laughs> I'm not stopping. Oh, God. I could just talk to you forever. I love you I so much. I thank love you, you, too. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with me and with um, the audience. And uh, I know that we went a little long and that we ended up down some alleyways of sorts, but you guys can deal with it. Uh, <laughs> I'm confident. We're fucking delightful. We They'll are. deal with it fine. We are fucking delightful. And for more delight, tune in next time I bring Terry back. But thank you very much for your time. Thank today. you. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for being willing to be a witness to these women and to their stories. If you loved today's episode, be sure to subscribe and write a review. And most importantly, invite the women you know to join this chorus of courage and help us make a world where everybody belongs. I'll see you all soon.